0: morning, I'm Pastor Jay, and it is my privilege to invite you to open your Bible to Paul's letter to the Corinthians, his first one, chapter 11. As Wayne said when he read Scripture today, we're going to be looking at worship, and specifically, unfortunately, from this letter, worship was dividing their church. It was, was a very young congregation in southern Greece, and it was being pulled apart at the seams. And in this chapter today, Paul is going to address with tenderness but pretty straightforward bluntness why worship should not be dividing the church. And so, this is a very important text. Paul has been rebuking them all along for selfishness, self-centeredness, divisiveness. This is a young congregation that he helped start about four or five years earlier than this. He'd stayed there for about 18 months and then he left. And he'd gone across the Aegean Sea to what is today Western Turkey to probably the largest city in that region, Ephesus, city of several hundred thousand. And there he was church planting and discipling. And reports started coming across the sea that the young congregation he had helped start in southern Greece was not going very well. In fact, it was pretty much of a train wreck going over the cliff. And so a series of letters started between him and this church. And we have two of those letters in our New Testament, which means we have more words from the Apostle Paul to this church than to any other church he wrote to. We have 13 letters from Paul, and we have more of his words to this congregation than any other. I want to put a quote up on the screen uh, We've been encouraging you to use a commentary by Thomas Schreiner. Thomas Schreiner is a really good first-class New Testament scholar at Southern Seminary down Louisville. And this is a newer commentary he wrote just a couple years ago. And he has an opening paragraph in the front of the commentary why this letter to 1 Corinthians is so valuable today for the average church, especially in a North American context. And here's what he says. He said, the first letter to the Corinthians speaks to us today because the problems addressed still affect us. And that would, any gospel preaching church, really anywhere, it affects. Believers are tempted to pander to the rich, to hobnob with the elite, to curry favor with the powerful, and to be impressed with intellectuals. Divisions arise because of stubborn pride, which represents the exaltation of self. At the same time, sexual sin compromises the holiness of the church. When our doctrines are adjusted to fit the society we live in, let me just say that is certainly going on today in a lot of churches, and our spiritual gifts become a barometer for our spirituality, we see that the errors of the Corinthians are still with us today. That is why this letter is so valuable. That is why we've carved out four months to spend in this letter, believing that these letters in the New Testament are inspired by the Holy Spirit, down to the smallest stroke of a pen, the smallest syllable, and that this is God speaking to us today. So, as we come to this chapter, we're going to see Paul addressing two issues that were causing division in this church. If you have an English translation of the Bible, which I'm sure most of you do, you probably have these two headaches. He's just addressing these one at a time. First, the issue of head coverings. Talk about a, a uh, countercultural chapter today, but <laughs> the issue of head coverings and the issue then of the Lord's Supper Both of these address a number of issues that are very countercultural today. So, we're going to dive in. First of all, the issue of head coverings for women. I'm going to read the first five verses of chapter 11, and then we'll just simply start walking through this. But this is his first subject that was a mess in this chapter. Verse 1, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. I praise you for remembering me in everything. And for holding to the traditions just as I pass them on to you. But I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ. And the head of the woman is man. And the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head uncovered dishonors his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is the same as having her head shaved. So for a man, his head is to be covered, uh, uh, uncovered. For a woman, her head to be covered. This is Paul in the first five verses. Now, let me walk through these briefly. The primary, here, here's the key. The primary concern in these first verses, especially verses 1 through 16, is not head coverings. That's not the primary issue here. The primary issue in these verses is the principle of male headship in creation, and especially in marriage, which is why, just to let you into the academic realm for just a second, is why these verses, and specifically this chapter, is so vilified or simply reinterpreted by so many biblical scholars. You say, well, why, why would that be? Aren't they biblical scholars? Well, look, you have to you never forget Scholars are just like the rest of us, they have a different training, they have a different set of skills, and they may have more academic training in certain areas, but they're human beings. Scholars are driven by conscious and unconscious motives and presuppositions like everybody else. Unfortunately, something that a lot of lay people don't really realize, a good number of New Testament scholars in the world especially in Western culture, by that I mean America, Western Europe, and Australia are quite liberal. A number of them, even that I have in my own library, I would classify as agnostics or atheists. They don't either believe in God, they don't know if a God exists, or they're just extremely liberal. A lot of them are driven, quite honestly, far more by a secular agenda, a feminist agenda, or an LGBTQ agenda than they are by the Bible. Fortunately, if you know anything about the contemporary scene in Western culture, in the last 30, 40, 50 years, that situation has reversed. And with the prominence today of large evangelical Bible-centered seminaries, we now have a plethora of New Testament scholars, well-trained, good academic credentials that are Bible-believing and affirm the text. Our goal is always to ask the prominent question, I bring this up regularly, not what does the culture say, but what's the question we need to ask? What does the text say? What does God say? Not what does our culture say? And To help us grasp this, we need a little bit of historical background here. It was common in many cultures back then, as with many cultures today who are, uh, that are Muslim. It was very common back then for married women to wear some sort of head covering or veil. Becky and I have seen this a lot in Asia or in the Middle East. It's very common for married women to wear it. Not every Muslim country, but a large percentage of them. And and, and the purpose of it is to show respect for the headship. The authority God has placed in the husband. You have to remember, ancient Greece, the letter that Paul's writing, the culture that Paul's writing his letter to, was a very hierarchical culture. It's a shame-honor culture. And like many cultures today, which is very hard for more of an egalitarian Western democracy, we we are like at the other end of the spectrum. And so we read a letter like this, and for many of us, it's either a jolt or we don't even have the categories to process it. Now, according to verse 10, here's the key. Look at verse 10. The head covering, and this is why I say that's not the main issue here, it's pointing to something. The question is, what is it pointing to? When you're reading your Bible, keep asking questions. I hope you read your Bible regularly. I hope you're opening it every day and digging into it, but you should always be engaging with it. The key passage here, verse 10, is this, the head covering was a sign of authority. That's the key, which means there's a deeper principle going on here. It was a sign of submission. It was a public statement, a public statement that a wife or a woman respected the authority of her husband in that culture. So even today, when you're in a Muslim culture, very commonly, once a woman is inside the home, the veil comes off, the head covering comes off. That's pretty normal. We've even been in, we've even been in Muslim homes where the woman has taken off her head covering in our presence. But out in public, not so much. Let's just stay on. Look at verses 10 to 16. It is for this reason that a woman ought to have authority over her own head there's a number of ways you can translate that or have a head covering on because of the angels nevertheless in the Lord woman is not independent of the man nor is man independent of the woman for as woman came from the man so man so also man is born of the woman but everything comes from God judge for yourselves then is it proper for a woman to pray now again we're talking in a public setting is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him? But that if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. For long hair is given to her as a covering. If anyone wants to be contentious about this, oh yeah, there's lots of contentious people running around in churches, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. So in other words, a woman's hair Is her natural covering, the head covering then, the the veil, is to be a symbolic covering for the public to see. So the bottom line in Corinth is that there were probably a group of married women in this congregation who saw no need anymore because they were liberated in Christ. That's what chapters 8, 9, and 10 were about. Christian freedom, the abuse of Christian freedom. Probably, and most conservative New Testament scholars tell us, it's probably got a group of women who felt now that they're liberated, now that they're free in Christ, they can dispense with the veil, which would probably, again, fit well with Paul's comments in chapter 8 and chapter 9 and chapter 10. The Problem is not wearing the veil in public in that culture, just like today, and again, I go back to Muslim culture because it's probably the most common analogy, to not do that would be extremely disruptive, because, of, let, me, let me give you an analogy. Now, I'll tell you something first. My analogy is going to break down because analogies are designed <laughs> to break down, okay? So, before you shoot holes in it. But here, here let me give you a little bit of analogy. To, for a woman in, in that culture to not wear a head covering, a wife to go into a public setting and not wear a head covering, especially a worship context, would be somewhat analogous today. I can think of two things that would be equally shocking. One, would be to see a woman in the Middle East or in Asia going into a worship service with shorts on. That would, you know, I may not shock shocking, I mean, some of you may be here today with shorts, but that would be scandalous. I just, there's no other way to say it. A woman would never, ever, a man for that part would never wear shorts in a worship service in the Middle East or in Asia. In an American setting, the closest thing I can think of is if a woman just chose to wear a a bikini into a service. I mean, well, you know, is there a verse that says don't do that? Well, we certainly have verses about modesty and holiness and all that, but no, we don't have a verse that says don't wear a bikini into a service. But it would be shocking and inappropriate for a number of reasons. So it's not an exact analogy, but it gives you a feel for how this was being disruptive and divisive That's my point, in this congregation. Now, let's go to the obvious question, the elephant in the room, which is this. Are head coverings then a permanent custom to be observed today? You can tell from looking around our congregation, our answer is no. Some churches say yes. I don't think the Bible teaches that. Why? Because the actual head covering, again, isn't the point here. That's not the point. Paul is chiding this church. I mean, it's very clear as you follow just... The logic of the text here, he is chiding this church for violating a deeper principle. He had wives that were not showing the due respect in that culture to their husbands. And by dispensing with it, were causing disruption, chaos, and confusion. And in other cultures, you have different ways that this is expressed, headship. But in this context, Paul said this is such a strong cultural thing to dispense with this, is absolutely chaotic and was throwing this congregation into a tizzy. Now, having said that, let's go back to the headship principle again today. Again, our our goal here is not to be politically correct. Our goal is not to be uh, antagonistic just for the sake of being antagonistic. Our goal is to be faithful, humble, courageous, and ask, what does the text say, separate from our, our cultural setting? Many today, I mean, this is obvious don't like this chapter. In fact, there are four major chapters in the New Testament that drill down on the headship of the husband in a marriage. They are 1 Corinthians 11, Ephesians 5, 1 Timothy 3, and Titus chapter 1. Now, it's alluded to in other places, but those are the four main Pauline texts. And by the way, those four passages, 1 Corinthians 11, Ephesians 5, 1 Timothy 3, and Titus 1. Those four chapters underscore and underlie Paul's argument why in a local church the elders are to be men. Now, that's a question that comes up a lot in our new member seminar, especially from those coming in from other denominations. Do you have female elders? And then Pastor Tim and I explain no, we do not. Why not? It's a good question. We always go back to the text. We go back to passages like these chapters and explain the issue of headship and authority. And our goal is not whether they agree or not, but at least that they see the biblical argumentation for why Paul argues this way. Paul's point can be traced back, if you look at verse 3, to a word that's used three times in verse 3 which is a pretty clear heads up that this is really important. But I want you to realize that the head, I don't throw around a lot of Greek on Sunday mornings, but that word is important, Kephale, it's used three times here. It is a word used in a number of contexts in the first century, often in a military sense, but it's clear whatever your context is, it implies hierarchical authority. I want you to realize the head of every man is Christ. That's very clear, the submission there. The head of the woman is the man, and the head of Christ, within the triunity of God, there's a functional subordinality of Jesus to the Father, and the head of Christ is God. In other words, this is key. There is an authority structure that God has placed in creation that flows out of the Trinity itself, that's key. So at root, submission has nothing to do with inferiority because the members of the Trinity are all God, they're all co-equal, but there is still an authority structure even in the inter-Trinitarian nature of the Godhead. So at root, submission is a respect for the authority God has placed in creation. Look at verses 8 and 9. Paul's entire discussion here goes back to Genesis 2. That is why it's so important to believe in the historicity and the the accuracy, I would say, of Genesis 1 to 11. Chapters that are increasingly today not only thrown out the door in the secular university, but increasingly are called into question in so-called Christian colleges and universities. It's not uncommon today that if you go into a, a number of Christian colleges, even in here in the Midwest, the two most hostile departments to biblical authority are the Bible department and the biology department, and that shocks, that shocks a lot of parents, but it's true. So you go back to Genesis 2, Paul's anchoring his whole argument here, it's very clear you'll get verses 8 and 9 in Genesis 2. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Well, he's he's right back in Genesis 2. That's why you need a literal Adam and a literal Eve. Neither was man created for the woman, but woman for the man. It is for this reason. So, it's a theological reason and a cultural reason that a woman should have authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. If you go back to Genesis 2.18 for a second, where Paul clearly is dipping, Genesis 2.18 Remember, the New Testament is written in Greek, coin Greek. The Old Testament is written in two languages, mostly in Hebrew, and some of it in Aramaic, sister language. This is written in Hebrew, but the Lord said, the Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. That was every seminary guy's favorite verse. When he was over looking for a bride, which I was doing before I graduated from seminary. I will make a helper suitable for him. And most of you probably don't have a Hebrew Bible in front of you. The word helper there, a simple Hebrew word, it's used 21 times in the Old Testament. Ezer, Ezer. In English, we'd write it E-Z-E-R, E-Z-E-R, but it's really pronounced Ezer. It's used 21 times in the Old Testament. Two cases of it are applied to Eve. Three times it's used to refer to powerful nations. Israel, was call, the, Israel called on to help them when they were being besieged. And the other 16 times, it refers to God as our helper, especially in the Psalms. So, it's a very strong word. So, when you get to Genesis 2.18, Paul hardly is demoting women. Hard, he's hardly saying there's, that they're inferior. That's not, he's arguing the opposite. He's arguing that the woman is designed to be a co-equal, completely equal, ontologically, bio- biologically equal with a man. But there is still an issue of authority, and he draws even from the Trinity. You see that that nature flows right there. So, contrary to what some claim, let me just bottom line this. Paul's teaching, whether it's in 1 Timothy 3 or Titus 1, this is really important, whether it's 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1, Ephesians 5, or in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul's teaching upholds the dignity, the equality, and the value of women. In fact, it was a very countercultural argument in his own day. So don't just think, oh, this text is countercultural today, but in Paul, he was being just as countercultural in that day. Greco Roman culture did not esteem women, nor did Jewish culture, for that matter. Most rabbis refused to teach women, and the status in the Greco Roman world was not a whole lot better. And if you were to travel today in the Muslim world, much of Asia or the Middle East, you would see the same kind of thing. Becky and I have been in a number of mosques on Fridays for prayers. Women are barely represented. It is a very male-dominant world. I love the quote from Rodney Stark, who's a sociologist and a uh, a Christian. He teaches at Baylor University, but he said, It's common knowledge among ancient historians that Jesus, Paul, and the early church elevated elevated women to a level unparalleled in history he says this comes from his book discovering God the origins of the great religions quote Christianity accorded women considerable status and an opportunity to lead and he goes on to make the argument that the Bible is very unique in the ancient world because it exalts the role of women to a level unparalleled in human history and just to be fair to all this gentlemen Paul is very clear. In fact, he's equally clear. In fact, he spends three times the ink on the, val- uh, uh, on the role of a husband in Ephesians 5. So just so we're clear, Paul is very clear on what our duties are as a husband, whether you're a husband now or a husband wannabe or a future husband or even if you're a widow or divorced or single. It's good for us to all understand and understand what that role is. In Ephesians 5, Paul is very clear. The husband's number one job description is to love and cherish his wife. She is to show unconditional respect. He is to show unconditional love. And to love to such a degree that his wife feels secure, treasured, cherished, safe, Protected, verbally, emotionally, psychologically, spiritually. That is our role. That is the whole sermon. So this is not that sermon today, but I want to put that in here just to make sure we understand. Paul was very clear about the role of both the husband and the wife. And what happens as Emerson Egrich says in his book, Love and Respect, is that in marriages, it's very easy. I know because Becky and I have done it. We've all done it if you're married. You get into what's called the crazy cycle. And that is this, a wife says, well, how do I respect him? He's not respectable all the time. And so she disrespects. And then he's like, well, then how can I love her when she's not respecting me? And pretty soon the whole cycle is going backwards and downhill. And you get into either called the crazy cycle or or the stupid cycle or whatever you call it, but it becomes very destructive if you don't pull out of it. It's a tailspin. And that is why it's so important that wives and husbands understand the way God created it, because as you... Operate in that synergy, the whole marriage comes uphill. When you choose to respect your husband, ladies, and husbands, when you choose to love and cherish your wives, the whole marriage equation can't but go uphill. That is why some of the strongest marriages on the planet are seen in Bible preaching churches. So that is the issue here. It's not head coverings per se, it is the issue of male headship. It's rooted in Genesis 2, it's very countercultural. But again, the question here this morning, without animus, without anger, without anything, is just what does the text say? And let me also add, historically, the church has had no doubt what the text here says. The three main branches of Christendom, Orthodox, Eastern Orthodox, Roman Catholic, Protestant. Today, if you want to put in Pentecostal as a fourth wing of the church, all of them have agreed historically, go back 2,000 years, on what this text says. There's really been no debate at all. Second issue he picks up, and that actually ties in today to what we're doing, the Lord's Supper, is Paul takes on communion and the subject of the Lord's Supper, verses 17 to 22. Let me start there. He, he, he runs the argument from 17 through verse 34, but let me pick up in verse 17. In the following directives, I have no praise for you, free meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. Well, that's an understatement. To some extent, I believe it, no doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. So then, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. For when you're eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry, another gets drunk. I mean, you can see what's going on here. It was a fiasco. Now, in verses 23 to 26, Paul describes, first of all, the purpose of communion of the Lord's table, of the Lord's supper, whatever we want. The Eucharist comes from a Greek verb, to give thanks. Verses 23 to 26, the beauty of what this whole sacrament is about and what the purpose is. Verse 23 to 26. And this is going to sort of serve into our preparation this morning for taking communion. For I received from the Lord what I passed on to you. That's an ancient formula for me referring to oral tradition that has come down to him that's reliable for I received from the Lord what I passed on to you the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread when he had given thanks he broke it and he said this is my body which is for you do this in remembrance of me in the same way after supper he took the cup he said this cup is a new covenant in my blood do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me for whenever you eat this bread drink this cup what are you doing? You are preaching, preaching the Lord's death until he comes. What's the key word here? Remember. Remember. So, issue number one this morning head coverings, abuse of authority. Cavalier attitudes towards liberation and all that, that was dividing this church and disrupting this church like lots of other things, lawsuits and sexual immorality. All kinds of things were dividing this church. That was just the latest issue. And now it's the Lord's Supper, even something that is supposed to be a time of heightened connection and togetherness was again dividing this congregation. And so Paul calls them on the carpet for this one. and The reason why remember is the key word, is this. Paul wants us, Jesus wants us to remember two things, why he died, how he died. The essence of Christianity, the essence of the gospel is centered in one event, it's called the cross, which includes the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. All three are critical for gospel salvation and for Redemption. For it was here that Jesus shed his blood. First, he had to live and fulfill the law perfectly for 33 years. Then, he had to offer his life as a substitute, as the perfect substitute. The only way we could do that is if he lived and fulfilled the law for 33 years. That's why that one gets left out too often. It's his life and his death and his resurrection. Just the life and death is not enough. You have to have the resurrection. All three are critical for redemption. That's the essence, and that's why Paul is talking here. That's the whole point of communion. It's not anything in the elements themselves. We don't believe in transubstantiation. We don't believe in consubstantiation. I think there's a heightened presence of the Holy Spirit during the Eucharist with God's people. He draws them together in an unusual way. That's why this was especially tragic, because this was doing the exact opposite. It was alienating people from each other the way they were doing it. But Paul is very clear The purpose of this is to remember that the cross is the center of the gospel message. However, before he finishes up, Paul talks about one other thing here. He talks about the danger of taking communion, and that is in verses 27 to 30. I read these verses off and on during communion. They're sober, but they need to be focused on. So then, verse 27, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord... In an unworthy manner, and we could do a whole word study on what exactly that means, but I'm going to give you, I think, the essence of it here in a second, will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone then ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, and that probably means His church, Eat and drink judgment, or some translations, older translations, damnation on themselves. And then Paul adds, very shockingly, that's why many among you are weak, or sick, or a number have even died, or the euphemism fallen asleep, but that's, we know what that means. So, what is the danger of communion this morning? I actually have a communion sermon. I have not preached it in a while, but. The title of it is simply, The Danger of Taking Communion. What is it? The danger of taking communion is to participate in this ordinance, this sacrament, being disqualified from doing so. That's the danger. The obvious question is, well, what disqualifies somebody from doing this? Because in churches every week around the world, people take communion... Some who don't even know if they believe in the creeds of the church. What's the great danger? The great danger, what disqualifies someone from participating. That implies, I mean, that applies here this morning. Here's what disqualifies us from participating. Basically, two things according to the New Testament. Number one, we are not a born-again Christian. We don't know Jesus for sure. Which is why, by the way, Communion, the Lord's table, is not a time for infants and toddlers. It needs to be a time for those who know Christ, have made a conscious decision, and clearly understand what it is they own and what they're doing. Before we allowed our kids to take communion, or even be eligible, we called it eligible, that was our word. Before you're eligible to take communion... And later, before you're eligible to be baptized, they had to do several things. But one of them was they had to make, they had, you know, they had to share not only how they came to know Christ and review that with us, but then they had to take a theological walk around the block with Dad. And I wanted to make sure, it was a friendly, loving walk, but I wanted to make sure they understood what it was they're doing and not doing to just bring pre-teens into a service and let them participate without them understanding both the beauty, the purpose, and the danger, friends, is a misservice to our kids. This is a high and holy time in a church's setting, and so we should go overboard, those of us who are Christian parents, to make sure if we're going to allow our kids to be eligible for communion and baptism, that we've done the sufficient groundwork to make sure they are prepared and we're convinced they are truly born again. Lots of people grow up in churches and claim all sorts of things and pray prayers and accept Jesus in their heart and they're never converted. And the evidence is once they get of age, they leave and they never go to church again. There's no interest in spiritual things. That is why we need to do the hard work of evangelism and discipleship. That is not the church's job. Church's job is to augment that, to help that, to provide resources. It's the mom and dad's job to do the evangelism and the discipling. That's Deuteronomy 6. It's to be something that goes on all the time in the home. More than we talk about sports, more than we talk about politics, more than we talk about whatever we talk about. It's to be nonstop chatter about all things gospel, all things biblical. And so the first thing that disqualifies somebody from not participating this morning is you're not sure you know Christ. Second thing is for those who are genuine born-again believers, but there is something in their life that is unconfessed that they're aware of and they're not dealing with. The context here, by the way, is a broken, damaged relationship. That's, I mean, that's Paul's original context. The sin, really, he's talking about here are damaged relationships in this church that people had not cleaned up and were not attempting to clean up. Now, you can have a damaged relationship that you have tried to clean up, well then you're good. But these are people that are just at war with each other and then they waltz in pretending like everything's fine. Meanwhile, behind them there's a trail of gossip and, and grudges and bitterness and broken and damaged relationships. And then, and then they just all waltz in and pretend like everything's fine and take communion and talk about being one in Christ and all. And Paul said, this is a mockery. This is a mockery. So the the, the, the original sin here is broken, damaged relationships that they're not taking care of. But by extension, it's unconfessed sin that we're aware of and then coming in and pretending like, oh, everything's good between me and the Lord. There's broken fellowship. And Paul says that disqualifies somebody. And so there are times when a genuine believer needs to abstain if there's something they're not dealing with in their life, a sin they're aware of, but they're not dealing with. And hence, you get verse 28. I mean, this thing just boom, 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 logic. Paul is so logical. Verse 28, therefore, everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Of course. Am I truly born again? And as far as I know, am I in fellowship? Are are, are the sins I'm aware of, are they confessed to God? Am I aware of any broken relationships that I am not taking the steps to mend? Is there bitterness in my heart? Am I sexually immoral? Am I doing things? Am I in an ongoing lying relationship with my spouse or my parents? I mean, you can go down the list, but there's a sin you're aware of that you're not dealing with, that you're, even more than that, you're trying to make sure nobody else knows about and there's a hidden backstage life. Let me just say, you dare not take communion. I dare not take communion at that point. That's, that's Paul's whole argument here. And that's why he says they are not recognizing the body and blood of Christ. To fail to recognize, verse 29, the body of the Lord, means to fail to grasp the unity and the holiness of Christ in his church. That's what we're talking about, in the body of Christ there. So, this is two very countercultural sections and a very countercultural chapter. What is the summary before we go to communion this morning? What is the summons? Here's the summons. It's really twofold. One, coming out of the first section, do you have a biblical view of men and women according to the Bible? Now, I plan my sermons a year out, generally. Every fall, I go on a study break to finalize my preaching schedule after getting input and praying and seeking stuff and pull it together for the next year where I believe God is leading me. I didn't plan to preach this one during Pride Month, but it's an appropriate one for Pride Month. Becky and I were out last night with our elders in Woodstock. Rainbows everywhere. It's the great subversion of the rainbow, by the way. But precious people who are very misguided very misguided, who takes something God has said as an abomination and not only want us to agree with it, but they want us to celebrate it. I can't celebrate something God calls an abomination. It's not that the people necessarily an abomination, it's that the practice of homosexual behavior is what is the abomination in God's eyes. Because, why? Everything goes back to a why. Because it undermines everything God says about the husband and the wife, the man and the woman. The whole... Marriage relationship, Jesus says, points to himself and his church. That's Paul's whole argument in Ephesians 5, that marriage points to Christ and his church. You undermine all of that with the LGBTQ agenda. And so the first question this morning is, do I have a bi- biblical view of men and women? The great lie, friends, I say this with tender I hope tenderness, the great lie of the LGBTQ plus revolution is that we get, to de- we get to decide, just the insanity of it, our gender and our identity and our moral standards. There's only one word for that, for any culture that does that. Insanity. Cultural suicide. And it's also rebellion against what God has said. Now, I know I have some of you here that are younger and are, you're not liking what I'm saying because some of you have talked to me. Uh, okay. My job is not to make this palatable to you. My job is to present it in a humble, godly way, an accurate way, in a courageous way so that you can at least understand what God has said. And let me just add, one of the most powerful evangelistic tools on our planet is a godly marriage. Godly marriage. Where people can see how a husband loves and cherishes his wife, how a wife submits and honors her husband, how they are co-equal and operate, and the wife is an azer and a strong, suitable helper for her husband. That is a tremendous evangelistic witness where husbands fulfill their role as spiritual leader, a wife as a, a, a helpmate and a support, and they are attempting to procreate. That is a mandate on us if we can, either biologically or through adoption. Never underestimate the power of in a lost culture of a godly marriage. That's summons number one. Last summons. So, first summons, do I have a biblical view of men and women and how all that ties into the gospel and the Christ and His church? Second summons this morning, last one, do I have a biblical view of the Lord's Supper? Do you have a biblical view of the Lord's Supper? If you know Jesus is Lord, are you taking the Lord's Supper seriously here? And if you have children at home, are you helping them understand what this is why they need to wait we have our kids wait for lots of things lots of good things and what it is all about moms and dads our kids need to know what it means to know Christ it's more than just praying a prayer it's being all in and that the Lord's Supper is something of reverence and holiness in the life of a church and we need to teach them the why behind this whole practice And so, again, why we should help them examine themselves and understand their theology to know what the beauty of communion is, its purpose, and the danger behind it. So, this is a weighty chapter, isn't it? (laughs) But a lot of God's chapters are weighty. And thank thank God we have an anchor in the prevailing and shifting cultural winds, because it's not just cultural winds of North America, every culture... Has winds that shift and blow all over the. And the Bible is offensive in every culture at different spots. You'd be shocking. You'd be be surprised how offensive the Bible is in a Middle Eastern context when it talks about forgiveness and turning the other cheek. I mean, the, the point is this is an offensive book in every culture. It just is a matter of where in that culture it's offensive. And this happens to be one of the chapters that is very offensive in Western culture, but that doesn't change what God has said. So I'm going to lead us into a time of um, reflection for the Lord's table this morning.